This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, for those of you that are in the room, for those of you that are watching online, let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to do five verses together this morning. This is the second biggest chunk that we will do in all of Romans 8, five verses. And so I will read these for us beginning at verse 17. We're calling this the best chapter in the Bible. Romans 8, starting at 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, I thank you for this gathering of our Savior Evangelical Free Church for the brothers and sisters that were able to join us last night together in the room, and for those that are are worshiping online, we welcome them as well. May we see this morning the grandeur of your gospel and the goodness of salvation. May we see that the sufferings of this present life are nothing in comparison with the glory to come and all that this world has to offer pales when set against heaven and your presence forever and ever and ever. I pray that you will encourage the faint-hearted this morning and that you will do your work through the spirit that lives inside of us. If I say anything that isn't true or isn't good from your word, would you please help us to wipe that away from our memory? We only want to take what, we, what you have for us from this time. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Romans 8, 17 through 21 might seem like a strange combination of verses to pick out. For one thing, in most of your English Bibles, it ends one chapter and begins another, and it kind of cuts off in the middle of both of those chapters. There are two reasons. One of them is really simple. The other one makes a little bit more sense why we chose to break it this way. The first reason uh, is sometimes when you're setting up plans and you're uh, planning things out over weeks and months, you just have a couple of breaks here and there that you need to make work. And so we needed to make a couple of, we needed to take a couple of weeks and make them one week at some point to fit in with our plans. And this seemed like a good way to do it. And that reason is, even though it's a chapter break, even though it's a a little bit of a strange break between verses, uh, there is a connection that I want to show you between verses 17 and 18, where we felt like this made logical sense. We're told in verse 17 that we are heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. Heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him. We'll talk about being heirs, we'll talk about suffering, but I just want to show you the connection first. In verse 18, it says that even though we suffer, nothing compares, and that present suffering is just a little bit compared with the supreme inheritance that we have in Christ. So that's the connection. 
in 17, suffering and inheritance as heirs, and in 18, suffering and the glory of inheritance is little in comparison to what we are given forever and ever and ever. So think of it like this. In verse 17, it says we will suffer. In verse 18, it makes sure that we know that suffering is not a reason to turn back from following Jesus. That's the connection. So coming out of the previous verses, the Apostle Paul says that those who are in Christ have the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us assurance that we are children of God. We're not stepchildren, we're not foster children. We are not just in God's care for a little while, but not fully part of his family. We are children who he loves dearly. And last week, what we said was he loves us with the same affection and gives us even the same care that he gave to his own son, Jesus. That's where I want us to just rest in for a moment this morning, that God loves you with the same affection and with the same heart that he has for his very own son, Jesus Christ. If you're in him, if you've turned from your sin and you now are in Christ, God loves you that much. And then verse 17 says that if God loves us like Jesus, and if God invites us to come to him like he invited Jesus to come, back in verse 15, what we studied last week, is we said, Jesus taught us to pray by calling God our Father. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. And Paul says in verse 15 here that we too, like Jesus, can pray and our hearts can cry out, Abba, Father, a, a kind and attentive term for God as a Father to us who is gracious, merciful, and gentle. And now verse 18 says that we are not only children of God with Christ, brothers and sisters, but we are also fellow heirs with Christ. And being an heir of God with Christ means at least two things. First, we will have the inheritance of blessing that God promises to his children God will bless his children. In Psalm 16, it says that at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. Revelation 21 says that there's no more pain or suffering or weeping or sorrow in the presence of God. Jesus promised that he was going to go to heaven and prepare a place for us. So there's a place for, specifically for us in the blessing of God. First Peter says that the joy of life in heaven carries on forever and ever and ever. So that's the blessing of God that we have. Joy in his presence, no more pain, a, a specific place for us, and that happens and it goes on forever. And that's only the second best inheritance that we have in God. The best inheritance, the second kind that we have, is we don't just get the blessing of God. We don't just get the stuff of God. We don't even just get the joy in the presence of God. We get God himself. We will see him face to face, and we will know him as we are fully known. The benefits, folks, of heaven are superb. But the true gift from God to his children is not good things, is not blessing, is not royalty even. It is God himself. Imagine on this Father's Day, 
that you were the child of a father who was wealthy and he loved to dote upon you his child and so he gave you all kinds of things he gave you all kinds of things that you thought would make your life fun and enjoyable and you had presents and gifts all the time but your dad traveled a lot for business was gone a lot for his job and then even when he was home he was working so he didn't have much time for you it wouldn't be long before all the trinkets in the world all the things the toys that you could possibly be given would somehow seem small and insignificant to your desire to just spend time with your dad for your dad to want to give you his attention affirm you and encourage you and spend time with you that's a little picture of what looking forward to heaven is like if you are more excited about the abundance of blessing if you're more excited about all the things that God will lavish on you great as they are but you haven't thought that much about the unending fellowship of God about being in the presence of the one who created you and redeemed you and now loves you perfectly forever and ever and ever then you have barely scratched the surface of heaven's joys the joy of heaven isn't that you are blessed the joy of heaven is that you are blessed in the presence and with the presence of God forever you get him that's why heaven's wonderful heaven is not just some kind of all-inclusive resort where your needs are met and you get the buffet every day heaven is the presence of God forever and ever and ever this is actually the reason that Christians have so much hope in this life and this is where we kind of transition it sets us up into talking about suffering no matter what happens here no matter how hard it gets or how little we have in the life to come we get the presence of God forever and ever and ever and we get everything else we get all the blessing but don't focus on that no matter how hard it is we get God I think we've got a little bit of a picture of this the past couple of months as we've reflected on what's truly important in our lives. We've all got this sort of crash course in priorities, what's truly important to us. I see it in the way that I think about our church. I think about our church first uh, where I'm a member of this church. I, I don't think of myself primarily as the pastor. I think that this is the, the local body of Christ that I am a member of. And as a member of our church, I just think about, well, what, what do I want in a church? What, what, what is good for us to do as a church? What kind of things will we be a part of as a church? Will we be successful in outreach? You know, are we gonna, what kind of programs are we going to have? And just I've had this firsthand reminder that the best part about church isn't all the programs. It's not all the things we can do and what we can try to offer. The best part about church is being together, is being with one another. I'll trade all the programs and I'll trade all the things we can try to offer and all the creative, creative things we can try to do just for the simple presence of being together. There's a lot to think is great about being part of a church. The best part about it is being with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's another little picture. Heaven will offer us so many wonderful blessings, but the best one is being together with God. The best one is being 
there to be in God's presence. The way that Paul writes that we should share in the inheritance of God with God, and he says, then he gives this kind of weird rejoinder, provided that we suffer with him. And I wonder, why does he say that? Why does he say, kind of reminder, well, you get that provided you suffer with him. And I think the answer to why does he give us that is simple. We would never choose suffering unless we saw it as an integral part of our journey. Unless it was part of our purpose. The way to glorification for Christians is not just to suffer for suffering itself, because somehow suffering by itself makes us holy. No, the way to glorification for Christians through suffering is because we follow after one who guaranteed our salvation, who guaranteed our glorification by his suffering, and part of following him, part of being with him, is being willing to and joining him in that suffering. It was Jesus' suffering that earned our glorification, but for us, it is our suffering that unites us to Christ and says we are willing to join him in that. And for us, I want, to hear, I want you to hear encouragement in this. For us being willing to answer this question, provide, you know, Paul says, provided that you're willing to suffer. So the question being, are you willing to suffer in your relationship with Christ? If you can answer yes, it actually provides assurance that you are indeed partakers of the inheritance that God has for you. So this is kind of a diagnostic question. If you wonder, is my faith genuine? Do I really have faith in Jesus? Ask yourself how much you are willing to suffer for it. If you think, well, I would denounce, I would denounce my faith at the first sign of trouble, or if things went the wrong way, I don't think I'd follow Jesus anymore. I just want to gently ask, are you truly a follower of his? If you would jump ship, at the first sign of trouble, are you really pursuing life with Christ? But if you say, I would continue to follow Jesus, even if the way gets hard, even if it gets costly to me, then what Paul is saying, you can have great assurance that you are born of the Spirit. Because nobody chooses suffering on their own. Nobody chooses to say, sure, I will suffer for something. We suffer for things that we think are worth it. We suffer for things that we think we need to suffer for so that we can advance in them. And so this is Paul saying those who are born of the Spirit have an inheritance of God in heaven if they're willing to say, yes, that is worth it to me to enter into suffering for. Another way of saying this is that suffering has a way of purifying us. It helps us to see what truly matters and to determine what is just extra and it might even be in the way. When we talk about suffering, I also want to be clear. I don't want you to misunderstand me, and I want to be gentle. I see people all the time going through really difficult things, really suffering, 
And I often think to myself, I'm not sure if I were suffering in that way, if I would have the strength to endure in Christ the way that that person is. And the reason, folks, is, and if you're sitting here wondering, if you're sitting at home wondering, I don't know what I do in the face of suffering. I don't think that Paul or Christ or God is asking you to say, make this commitment now without any context. Oftentimes, people who are suffering are given a special measure of grace to endure under that suffering that most of us don't have because we don't need it. And so, this is not a question to make you wonder if your faith is genuine. This is a question to help you ascertain, do you think it's worth it? Are you willing to suffer a little bit? That doesn't mean you need to know everything about what kind of suffering to answer that question. I don't want you to leave here wondering, am I suffering enough for my faith? The question is simply, are you willing to continue to pursue Jesus through hardship and even where things don't always go well for you? And then verse 18 tells us why it even makes sense to endure suffering in this life. And that's because any suffering that we have now is little in comparison to the glory that we will be given in heaven. If someone were to ask, why would I want to be a Christian if it were to mean suffering? The Apostle Paul just kind of says, pull up a chair and let me tell you why. And the answer is the promise that you have in Christ is that any suffering you endure in this life barely receives mention compared to the glory that you receive with God forever. The way of Christ was to suffer for his glorification and so ours, and then the way we follow after him is being willing to enter into those sufferings with him. And then in verses 19 to 21, Paul expands the explanation of of a little suffering and the eternal gift of glory to include not just you and me, but he says everything that God has created works this way. If the suffering is little and the glory is great, just then how big is the glory? And and God's word says that the glory is so big that even creation itself is waiting for it to happen. It's a really interesting picture that we're given here. First, creation comes to life and it has the type of mind so creation is kind of alive and it has the type of mind where it can wait for and even long for change the picture here the greek phrase is kind of the same idea as uh somebody leaning around a corner wondering what's around the bend creation is leaning kind of straining to see what's coming so that's the first picture and then second it's that creation is waiting to see so again in the picture creation has eyes it's waiting to see the sons of god in other words it says that it's this is because And creation is waiting to see the original design of God restored. When God created the world, he made everything that you see, everything in it, and he made man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation in his image and with the promise that under him they would be vice-regents over creation. They would have a sort of ownership, a rulership of creation. That was the purpose uh, that they were set in the world for. So they were given the job of doing things like naming 
all the animals, keeping watch over the creation, tending it. And they ruled, but not in a way that made things subservient to them, but the kind of charge they had was that they were to take care of and cultivate that which God had made. I think a little bit about this in the way that they were in charge, but it's kind of like I'm in charge of my dog. I'm in charge of my dog. I'm my dog's master, but everything I do in relationship to my dog is to serve her. She doesn't eat. She doesn't go outside. She doesn't do anything unless I make that happen for her. And so even though I rule over her, I use that rulership to bless her. I like to do things that she enjoys. I like it when she eats good food. I like it when she has a good rhythm. And so I spend a lot of my time making sure something that is subservient to me, that is lower than me, I make sure that she has what she needs. That's the way it is for people in creation. We get this picture because that's how God is with us. He rules over us. He reigns over us, but he uses his rulership to bless us. And so we are to use our rule, our vice regency over creation to cultivate and to bless, not to abuse, not to over-assert our position. That's what happened in the fall into sin, is we were lured and tricked into believing that God was withholding something from us and we needed to be like him. We needed to have more rule and more control. And so we tried to be like God when that was never within our capacity. So now, in that brokenness and in that fracture, creation longs to return to the time where the children of God are rightly in their place as those who benevolently rule, creatively cultivate and tend that which God has made. And it says at some point in the future that God's redeemed, his adopted children called his own will be restored to the way things were meant to be. And so creation is longing to see the sons of God. Now I want, I want you to see this in verses 20 and 21. Uh, see what th- will happen one day. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So so it says here again, the picture is now the creation, like it said earlier in Romans 8, that we have been in bondage in slavery to our flesh. Creation is in bondage to corruption, to something. There's something that creation needs to be free from, a a kind of slave, a kind of way that creation is enslaved. And so I began to think, how is creation enslaved? To what is creation enslaved? And this goes all the way back to the explanation of the implications of the fall in Genesis 3. And so let me just read this for you. This is Genesis 3, uh, starting at verse 17. And it said to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground. From out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Folks, creation was meant to declare the glory of God. But because of the fall, it became hard. Things began to grow out of the ground that make the ground difficult, that make cultivating the earth and tending that which God had given people to tend hard. All of creation is meant to declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Yet after the fall, even though people in our world and the universe, we st still declare the glory of God to some degree, we see that there is a capacity for glorifying God that is not currently being reached. One day that will happen, but right now, Creation is not glorifying God. People are not glorifying God. All that God has made is not glorifying his name in the way that it one day will. And the renewal of creation also shows us the extent to which Jesus Christ's work on the cross and his redemption will change things. It might appear from these verses that the greatest part of salvation is the renewal of creation— but actually, the, the, the next few verses go on to say that it starts with creation and it keeps going from there. Creation's a picture to say that, that where there are things around us that die, and just think about how broken the world is. Think about why it needs to be redeemed. Right now, we live in a place where things fade, where there are disasters, earthquakes, mudslides, droughts, famines, viruses. Christ's victory will remedy those things, and it won't stop there. It doesn't just redeem what God has created so this place looks a little bit better, and so it's easier to farm. It keeps going to the point that where every human heart that is open to God and each person's life who is given, uh, who has been awakened and quickened by the Spirit fully glorifies God. So we will one day live in a place where every aspect of that place is for the glory of God. All the things that we see and the places that we are and the plants that grow and the waters that teem, all of those things glorify God. And every person who is there is glorifying God from every part of their spirit. And here in Romans 8, the, the point in Paul telling us that all of creation will be renewed is for us to know that of everything we try to satisfy our hearts with, it is only the gospel that will finally fulfill us. Paul tells us that the creation is broken that the creation around us is longing for redemption. And his purpose in doing that is to make sure we know that the world is full of things that will promise us joy and satisfaction. But it's only the presence of God that can fully deliver on that promise. Here we're told that even the world, even creation knows it has nothing to offer us in comparison to a relationship with God. 
Creation knows it's broken. Creation knows it needs to be restored. And so, Christian, if you are looking to anything else in creation, know that that thing is never going to get it done for you. Know that whatever else you're looking at in the world, whatever else you're looking for in this life, it pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. It won't satisfy you. It's so easy for us to see the world around us and to focus on this one, to seek our fulfillment here, because it's where we live. It's what we see every day. Romans 8 makes sure that we know that there is a world that's better than this one. And that's the one that Christians can ultimately look forward to and hope in. The good news of Jesus is the only message in the world that has the audacity, the audacity to promise something so great that nothing in this world and even suffering in this life pales in comparison to the joy of being with God forever. That's what these verses in Romans are saying. There's something that's so great that nothing you can see and nothing you can find in this world hold a candle to it, and even your suffering in this life is worth it because of how great it will be in the future. Being a Christian means being able to lift our gaze beyond this time and beyond these places. It's so easy to think small. When there are troubles in our world, when there are present sufferings, and I'm not dismissing any of those things. They're real and, and they're significant. They do deserve some of our attention. But let's not focus finally on them. They are not what is ultimate. They are not what will be forever. There is something so much more than this life so don't focus on the things that you can have here or see here or seek after here. And know that even when you suffer here, that suffering is but a light and momentary affliction compared to knowing Christ forever. That's your promise. It's our promise together. It's what's coming. These are hard days. You can't see what I see. I see a, a room full of people wearing masks because the world around us is clearly not suited for us. But we have one, one day that finally will be. Folks, hope in that. Long for that. Put your joy in that. It's coming. And these sufferings but are but a momentary affliction. God has given you such a great inheritance, Christian. I hope you know it. I hope today you celebrate it. Let's pray. God, what a grand salvation you have accomplished. What a great hope you have given. I thank you for this church. We can get together in the room. We can get together on the internet. We can fellowship together and encourage one another. May we encourage one another today as long as it is called today. May that encouragement remain with us and constant throughout the week. We pray for one another and think of one another. God, give us a vision to lift our gaze and not to think small about this time, but to think big about the time to come with you when we are fully known forever and ever and ever. We thank you for that hope. Give us peace in our hearts, we pray. Amen.
Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.